This is episode 6 Bravo of Free as in Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Free as in Freedom. So it's been more than a year since our last show. It oh, no, has it hasn't. been a really Wait, long it time. Hasn't. It's been more than a year since we recorded our last show. <laughs> uh, it's sad because I believe that at that show we made much fanfare about being back. Yeah, we're still back. <laughs> we get to say we're- that every time. <laughs> Um, well, we're really glad if you're listening to this, that means you stuck with us. You, uh, you waited, uh, and, uh, and you still were interested in hearing from us even after this big gap, or perhaps you're listening to back catalog all at once and you're chuckling about how we continually say literally like every other episode, we're back, we're back, we're back. Yeah. Well, the, the, the feed never went down. So unless someone actively removed it from their feed, which they would have had to do, my understanding, and of course, most of these things are proprietary, so I, I don't know them. I just like shoulder surf people with them. But most of the podcast thingies that people use, they don't really show you podcasts that don't have new episodes. So you'd still be subscribed. And then this is just going to appear. It's going to, it's going to like, like, like a phoenix rising. <laughs> from the ashes that was our podcast will appear in their podcatcher programs. And hopefully that will make some listeners happy and other listeners will be like, Ooh, got to get that out of my feed. Depends. <laughs> it really depends on what we do in like the next 10 seconds, Karen, which one, which one they do. I mean, not to put any pressure or anything, but. Okay. Well, we should just say how, what, how we're doing things a little bit differently this time. Oh yeah. Good. Do that. Is, that maybe like, yeah. it's going to be so much better than before. Like if you liked it before, it's going to be even better. And if you didn't like it before, it's going to be so much better. You're going to like it. And Karen's going to tell you how. Well, I'm just going to, well, we're, we're, we're covering a bunch of things. We're going to get to some real substance in a little bit where we're going to talk about the uh, DMCA filings that uh, we at Conservancy just did um, yesterday at no Monday. Yesterday's yesterday. Karen, you're 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 failing to do podcast time travel again. Uh failing. Just recently. Um, we <laughs> just filed. recently. Oh, that's right. Yesterday for us. I'm out of the out of the swing of it. And um and so we're gonna we're gonna talk about those filings in detail and then um we're also before then gonna talk a little bit about uh the stuff we're doing now with the podcast, oddcast, oddcast. Um and how we're doing things a little bit differently because we are also currently, while we're recording, on Big Blue Button. And there are a few Conservancy supporters who heard about this today and who are watching slash listening to us record. That's quite correct. And and I think, I think, though, probably before we talk about logistics of the show, because, like, that's so meta. You know, that's the problem is, is when you have a podcast that spends most of the time talking about itself. That's when people click the unsubscribe. So we're going to get, I think, take a quick break and we're going to get right into substance. We're going to talk about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Section 17 of the United States Code, Section 1201 of 17 USC, and why we have it and why it's immoral. 
and how we're going to make it a little bit better for everyone, even though it's not a good thing. So, Karen, we've got to, I think, explain the DMCA first, because a lot of people contacted us and said they didn't know what the deal with the DMCA was. Yeah, and to explain the DMCA is kind of kind of difficult, because there's kind of no explaining of it. <laughs> well, um, I, I mean, it can be, I mean, you can explain what it says and how it's been interpreted so far. I, there's no explaining, I mean, I think there is explaining why it exists, but that's probably a longer story. Uh, it's suffice, I suppose, to say that everybody in the free software community wishes it didn't exist, generally speaking. Yeah, or that it were substantially different, right? Yeah. So DMCA stands for the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. This is a very U.S.-focused episode um, because it's a U.S.-focused law, but it has implications internationally. And so we'll talk about some of that, too. Well, there's two reasons that has implications internationally. The first one is, uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I know you probably don't want me to. to I, so, so as Karen is aware, I, I, I have begun to do some research going back to 1790 to figure out why the DMCA exists. And I am convinced that actually the roots of the DMCA go all the way back at least to the Copyright Act of 1870 in the United States, possibly to the 1790s. I won't do that on this show, maybe in a future show after I've done my research, because Karen doesn't doesn't think I've done enough research yet. And you're probably right. Um, I mean, you're not a copyright historian yet. But, but uh, oh, anyway, I, 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 I am a big fan, by uh, the, the side point here, I'm a big fan of people investigating as an amateur things uh, that are of academic interest. Uh, at one time in history, everyone was an amateur uh, in, in all intellectual endeavors. But anyway, I am an amateur copyright historian, even if not a professional one. But I will not go into any of the details that I've researched so far other than this one, which is that one of the reasons why the DMCA ended up like it was, was that uh, lobbyists discovered it was easier to get an international treaty approved by WIPO, the World Intellectual Property, quote-unquote, organization, and then come back to U.S. legislatures and demand that they pass a law to implement the treaty. Because that's how most things work in, in almost every country. The country has some process for negotiating treaties. In the United States, treaties are negotiated uh, by the administrative branch and then have to be confirmed by the Senate. Uh, and that is an easier process than starting from scratch with the law, because, of course, in the United States, we have and many countries have this two two branches of Congress and other other countries as two branches of parliament. Uh, and those two branches have to approve any law. And the House in the United States is uh, has more members and is often more politicized. And so it's harder often to get the House to pass something unless you're saying to the House, well, it's a treaty we've already approved. We've got to implement the treaty. Um, and so that kind of pressure uh, has been part of what made the DMCA happen. So there's this treaty called the WIPO Copyright Treaty, uh, which was, uh, I think, established in the, the very early 90s uh, and then uh, to slash mid 90s. And then by the late 90s, the uh, Senate had, had approved the treaty and then DMCA comes up for vote as ostensibly the implementation of the of the of the WCT. 
Right. And it's funny hearing that, like, and comparing it to the politicization of, or the current political situation. It's hard not to make commentaries about what's changed between now and then, but that's not the point of our episode. So true um, enough. Uh, refrain. True enough. But, um, but, but what you see, if you look at the, the Senate record is, uh, and, and the House record is the, you know, the, the world, uh, sorry, the WIPO copyright treaty gets approved and then quickly the DMCA gets passed. Now, we're going to talk about this in detail. The, the the DMCA, and this is why it makes it somewhat of a U.S.-centric episode, it does more than the treaty actually requires. And many of the worst parts of the DMCA are not actually mandated by the WCT. Right, because the implementation doesn't always mirror the treaty. Well, it has to meet the minimum requirements of the treaty, but it can. It, I mean, any country can pass laws beyond that if they want to, and that's what that's the right. DMCA did. That's right. And so... We I don't know how deeply into the the history you want to go. Bradley, well, I think I think but, that's enough of the history. I don't. I, I okay. would. I, I you know I want to go. I, you know I want to do a whole podcast about the history. But we've agreed that I this mean, will not can. be the podcast I, about the history. We we can go into more if you'd like. I mean, I think I, I think the upshot of all of this is that we have a a problem a deeply problematic law that um that has this strange rulemaking process built into it where. Every three years, um, there's a time for the public to come and uh, spell out where they think that the law is inadequate and to um, and to ask for exemptions to it. Um, and so that happens every three years, and that process is underway right now, and we're participating in it. And that's why we're, um, you know, that that's why the context in which we file these comments. So perhaps we should explain what the, you know, what the law says. Yeah. And, and so, and so to, to understand the exemption process itself, uh, there's some basic facts that you have to know about the law. And I was a little bit surprised. Um, maybe it's cause I'm old, I guess, but that, and realizing that a lot of people, this law is now so old, it's 22 years old. There are obviously free software developers in their early twenties who were babies when this law was passed. Uh, those of us that were around when the law was passed, we've, we've been focused on it for so long, we forget sometimes that there there really isn't good, and I went looking for it, there isn't good, really brief summary educational material uh, around the free software community about uh, about the law and what how it, how it interacts with free software. So I want to briefly summarize that. Um, so uh, so the first thing you might want to look at, you might even want to, if you're not listening like out and about, you might want to pause this and go watch uh, three videos uh, that are available from the Copyright Office. Now, I warn you, they are filled with Copyright Office, like pro-media company propaganda, but they really do a good summary of 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 the uh, of the DMCA. Did, did you did you end up watching those, Karen, or did you already know it all and didn't need to? Uh, I watched a little bit of it, but it wasn't anything new, so I I, yeah. I confess I didn't watch it. Yeah, I watched them all the way through, mainly to see if it was something I could recommend. And I think I do recommend them. If you ignore, you know, set aside the propaganda, it really summarizes the law really well. Um, and the key things that it summarizes, which I think are, are which I'll cover here uh, for those who who couldn't run off and watch the videos, um, the 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 law establishes this thing, uh, which is called in the policy circles around DMCA technological protection measures and that's often abbreviated TPM. And the TPM is a TPM is defined really broadly in the law. It includes basically anything that a copyright holder might do with a computer or a computer like system 
uh, or even a physical uh, control that attempts to keep you from engaging uh, in activities that are governed by copyright with the work. So this includes like scrambling it, encrypting it, putting password protection on it, as well as like putting a hardware thing on a, a e-reader that doesn't let you open it. All that sort of stuff can be considered a TPM under the law. And the goal, of course, was to make it so that as things moved into the digital realm, again, this is 1997, 98 when they're drafting this, uh, that there would be mechanisms to stop people from making digital copies they weren't allowed to make. Uh, and I think a lot of people kind of perceived it as just updating the law for digital era. Obviously, free software folks saw pretty quickly that the restrictions that it put in place were basically codifying into law digital restrictions management, or DRM. Yeah, and I think the, the law goes a lot further than people expect it to. It's fascinating, even talking to lawyers who are vaguely familiar with 1201, um, you'll find that they don't, they haven't actually read it in detail. And so folks don't think that it goes nearly as far as it does, because the idea that um, you should prevent people from circumventing uh, protection measures in order to do non-infringing things, so things that you should otherwise have the ability to do, sounds completely reasonable, like like preventing people from, uh, from, from, you know, for people from, uh, from trying to so-called pirate videos and things like that. It's just, um, you know, the, the, uh, media industry went on a big charm offensive, which, um, you know, uh, the reason I, I, once upon a time I was really involved with, um, questioncopyright.org and we did this whole, um, minute meme thing in order to, uh, contradict, uh, some of that media messaging to have copyright isn't theft. And, um, and, and, and the thinking started getting very along, very far along the lines of, um, of, of, uh, you know, piracy is theft and it's really wrong. Um, and mm-hmm. so, uh, this, this came, fits into that, uh, that puzzle. Yeah. I, and, and it's interesting, even as you talk about work that you've done to try and, uh, combat this kind of media charm offensive about, uh, about such things, you use, you know, you've, you defaulted this word pirate, which, uh, I've hated since the 1980s. Um, that, that was well, back when I was had a Commodore 64. This idea that you're analogizing this kind of problem, which is, which is a problem, you know, you know, illegitimate and unpermitted, uh, copies of software. Uh, that is, it's, it's noticeably a problem, but it's not the same order of magnitude, uh, uh, anywhere near the same order of magnitude problem as actual piracy. You know, we have people off the coast of Somalia stopping ships and killing people and stealing absolutely everything they have. That's nothing like what infringing copyright is, but that's exactly yeah. the kind of rhetoric that's out there. I almost used a different word. And then as I got there, I was sort of thinking that it's sort of the word has been a little bit reclaimed since then. Like some people use pirating or piracy as a, you know, in a, in a, in a way that's positive about it. But the reason why I wanted to talk about the minute meme is because there is that like very short video copying isn't theft. And I love it because it has that, uh, that quote, uh, if, if I steal your bicycle, you have to take the bus. But if I go and copy it, there's one for each of us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like the, we, we really like have uh, such a huge and had and have such a huge way to go to bring people, like to educate people into thinking about copyright as copying 
and not as some other kind of completely malicious, blown out of proportion evil behavior um, as the media industry has done, have done. And the DMCA fits into that rhetoric and that story. Yeah. And, and even, even in the DMCA, uh, so the DMCA uses this word called trafficking, which is often used for things like, uh, like illegal substances and, and, uh, and, you know, individuals who are enslaved. Like that's where trafficking is typically used, but they say it's a crime under the DMCA. It's listed as a crime to traffic in circumvention techniques, which include any technology that helps you get around any of these digital restrictions that might be implemented on DRM systems uh, for copyright holders. And so there are the really two types of restrictions. There's a restriction on trafficking. So I can't, uh, under the DMCA, tell you how to circumvent one of these measures. But also, it's an access control. So even if you know because you figured it out yourself or you guessed how to circumvent it, you're not allowed to do that either. Now, it's not universal. There are exceptions. Uh, and the statute itself in Section 1201, subsections D through J, it lists a bunch of permanent exemptions. Uh, my view on the permanent exemptions is they're, they're so narrow, I've never felt they were that great. Maybe you, do you have a different view of that, Karen? The permanent exemptions yeah. there. Yeah, I don't I, they, they leave a lot to be desired. Yeah. And so I mean, obviously, based on the exemptions that the requests we filed. Yeah. So why don't why don't you explain, Karen, a little bit about like, so so those are the permanent exemptions. They're in the statute. They live forever. We've just agreed they're very narrow. So what are these other temporary exemptions? Do you want to talk about what those are? Sure. I mean, so the Library of Congress can recommend exemptions. So we have this triennial review process, as I was saying. So every three years, people can come and say, I need an exemption to this rule. Um, I, I need an exemption to the, um, to the DMCA because I have to do something specific that's a circumvention of a technological protection measure. I need to do that in order to accomplish something that is necessary, that is either, uh, is connected to some kind of non-infringing, um, uh, use of a copyrighted work. And so, um, one of the examples of this is that some years ago, we um, we filed for an exemption for um, for smart TVs, and we were successful in that. And then the temporary rule was granted so that folks could circumvent technological protection measures in order to adjust their own televisions in some way. And there are, are so many reasons why people would want to do that. Um, and while it was hotly opposed at the time we uh, hotly opposed at the time we proposed it, uh, the the exemption was granted and it's been renewed ever since. And we renewed it this time with basically no opposition because there has been no negative effect on the industry for people being able to have more control over their smart TVs. And so every time in these three years, people have to come and they have to say, we have this use, we need it. Another example is I participated as an individual in a um, an application on behalf of medical device researchers, so I was one of a few medical device researchers who said we should have the right to be able to circumvent protection measures for our own medical devices um, to get information about what they're doing and then adjust them for our own medical treatment. And after much discussion and limitation, that exemption was requested and was also renewed. Yeah, and and the the process that one of the most disturbing things to me about the process is that the temporary exemptions, uh, remember I explained that there was uh, access controls and trafficking. Those were two different activities in the original statute. The exemptions, the temporary exemptions that are granted as part of this rulemaking process, 
they can only apply to the access controls part. So you cannot convince the copyright office, or you could convince them, I suppose, that you ought to have a trafficking exemption, i.e. be permitted to publish details about how you circumvented particular DRM. But even if you convince the copyright office that they thought it was a good idea, they are statutorily prohibited without an act of Congress to change the law from granting an exception for trafficking. They can only grant exceptions for individuals who are doing things on their own, on their own devices. It's pretty outrageous. I just left that pause for shock. <laughs> but I, I think, I, so, so, I, so I think that, that it's reasonable. We've, we've had a long period of time where there's been disagreement among activist organizations, whether even to participate in this process. Uh, rather famously, uh, because they're such a well-known organization, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, boycotted the process one year, uh, saying that it was so unreasonable that they didn't want to participate. And this year, as it turned out, uh, we didn't know this when we filed, but it turned out to be the case. Software Freedom Conservancy in the 2021 rulemaking, which began in, in late 2020, uh, we were the largest single filer. We filed three different exceptions in three different classes, and we filed more than anybody else. I think the EFF filed two. They were the next one down. Uh, and I think that sort of speaks to the fact that it's really difficult and time-consuming to write these exemptions. And even if you get them, they're just so narrow in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also you have to want have a need and want to do something with the equipment that you own or control or use or that your constituency owns or controls or uses. And of course, because we're a software freedom organization, we hit these issues all the time. So you have to be knowledgeable about it. And then you have to be able to articulate that into a question. There are all kinds of uses that are being done or all kinds of circumvention being done in in the real world where people don't have exemptions and they don't realize that they don't have exemptions for those actions. So, um, so not only did Conservancy do those three, I'm also individually a part of a coalition again for medical devices to expand that exemption. Right. I think that was filed under Hugo's name, right? No, uh, the original comment was, although we were all listed in the, um, in the, uh, in in the comment but the actual long form comment was was equally on behalf of all of us oh, okay. the three of us yeah because the yeah. original the original petitioner was listed as hugo um i'm not sure of their last name hugo campos yeah that they, they were listed as who the is awesome filer he's like petitioner. the he's like the other side of the coin from where i'm at because he has my exact same heart condition and he's advocated for access to patient data and uh and it's been really fun to get to know him he's a really um cool person but like the what motivates his activism is so closely related to mine and comes like because we're focused on different things often we come up like completely different places um when we uh when we actually have to decide on uh, on policy because you know he he is all for wireless connectivity provided he has information to it and i'm all <laughs> against like having my device connected to anything so we have these really fun conversations uh, the whole coalition also jay radcliffe is amazing so um but i was surprised when we got the the report of all of the organizations that had done these filings that we had had so many of them and i actually began to worry that we had three of them and then of course my bio in the new comment 
is is of course that I work at Conservancy. So I was sort of wor- worrying that initially that they're going to look like they're going to it's going to maybe look like we're just trying to file exemption requests just for the the sake of it. But the truth is, there's a reason mm. why we have so many, and that's because we we are at the intersection of 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 these issues and where we we need control of our devices in order to realize the software freedom that we should have. Yeah. And and in fact, that's required by the Copyright Office. Uh, the Copyright Office will not accept hypothetical scenarios or uh, arguments that have not happened in the real world. You, you can file for any exemption you think you might need in the next three years. So you can be somewhat forward-looking if you can predict the future, I guess. But you have to be able to show that there's actual real non-infringing uses. That's the key that people cannot engage in uh, because of the inability to circumvent the DRM. And I want to point uh, particular attention to that non-infringing uses. Once you've broken the DRM, you have to be able to show that what you wanted to do would not have infringed copyright other than the fact that you broke the technological measure. So it's this weird kind of bootstrapping thing where the technological measure is part of the copyright rule. And therefore, you're violating copyright law when you circumvent the technological measure. But if you can show that if that were not in your way, the thing you would want to do is a valid non-infringing use and has benefit and has some use in the real world, then and only then can you get the exemption. Uh, so you really do have to give these real-world scenarios. And all of our exemptions and, and the one you filed in coalition with the other medical device uh, users, I think all of them do give very good real-world scenarios where things are happening. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is tough, but you, you can, it's, you have to be looking into the future. And it's problematic that this only happens every three years, because you have to know at some point, you have to know at the right time to ask for the oh, exemption. Karen, Otherwise, technology does not change in a three year time frame. I've never seen technology that changed <laughs> radically over a period of three years. For those reading the transcript, yeah. that was said in a sarcastic voice. <laughs> Do we have transcripts we published? No, I just wanted to make sure in case there ever is a transcript that I'm not quoted saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, right. So where does that leave us now? Which is to say that it's, uh, you know, uh, it's, right. You mentioned a lot of organizations have boycotted it. Um, and and I think that's fair. And that's where we were at. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um many years ago and then we realized we just don't have a choice like the law is what the law is and we can work within it in order to make sure we have the rights that we need to the best that we can Mm -hmm. and so um and so there's two components to filing these um, exemption requests one is that we definitely we absolutely need to provide the safe harbors to do the circumvention that we need to do for our lawful activity um and we'll talk more about what we actually requested when we in a second mm-hmm. um but we also there's like when that's true there's also an advocacy advocacy component where we have to explain to people why we need to do those things and why we would need to circumvent uh, a technological protection measure in order to do it and so they're both both of those uh, you know you need you need you definitely need to have one in order to file but the second part is equally as important so that's one of the reasons why we take this process so seriously and why um we so wholeheartedly participated yeah and karen, so i think that's sort of a good wrap up yeah of- well and karen you just said that the 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 we had to file three because we needed them and i think the first one that we're going to talk about right after the break 
Uh, that one is going to be so obvious when our listeners hear we are falling for an exemption for it. Uh, they're going to see, uh, obviously, Conservancy absolutely needs this exemption, uh, rather desperately and urgently, in fact. So when we come back, we'll talk about our first filing uh, in the of the three exemptions we filed in the DMCA Trano rulemaking process. Sounds good. So, Karen, little did I know how many times I have circumvented technological measures in violation of the DMCA and wasn't allowed to. No, 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 no. How little you knew that maybe you were. (laughs) (laughs) So the first exemption that we applied for in this round is related to some of the core work that Conservancy does and that I've done at other organizations throughout my career, which is – investigate violations of the GPL and other copyleft licenses. So it's such a strange thing because in these instances, we're looking for people who are doing unlawful, like we know we generally have a strong suspicion that the people who created the device and who created the so-called technological protection measures are in fact the ones who are doing the unlawful activity. Yeah, and so... Yet, in order to circumvent those protection measures to find out whether they actually are, would be unlawful. Yeah, and I I love the part in our filing, uh, primarily written by our legal counsel, Pam Chustick, where she points out, like, there's this moment in the filing. So, by the way, there's this thing called the long comment, and that's sort of the main filing of the exemption. Your initial filing is pretty brief, and then you write what's called the long comment, and and those are what we published uh, recently. And in the long comment for this filing, we say, keep in mind, Copyright Office, we're talking about two copyrighted works here. There's the copyrighted work by the GPL violator, or alleged GPL violator, that like could be all sorts of things. It could be a movie or it could be just a user space proprietary Linux application. And then there's the other copyrighted work, which is things like Linux or BusyBox or other free software programs licensed under the GPL. And what we found for years, and this is why I made the joke about never knowing that I was violating copyright law to enforce copyright law, we found that companies are locking down devices with Linux inside in full violation of the GPL. And then to figure out that they're violating the GPL on Linux, we have to circumvent that measure to try to confirm that Linux is in there. That's right. And I think we did actually truly understand. I, I think this is, this is so, it's so fascinating because it really speaks to how silly this process is. Because I think we didn't fully think through all of the implications until we were actually thinking about the triennial review process as people who are deeply steeped in tech policy and really understand how all of this works, which is really says a lot. It says a lot for all the people who are doing lawful things or things that should otherwise be lawful that run afoul of the DMCA. Um, and I just want to take a second to just say that uh, Pam, as you mentioned, just did a beautiful job with this. Pam Chestick was uh, was Conservancy's lawyer and working on this um, request, and it's she, she's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so I actually thought of this. Uh, it was it was before we started uh, thinking about the rulemaking coming up in 2020. It was late in 2019 or early 2020. Uh, my colleague Denver Gingrich, uh, who works uh, with us on GPL enforcement uh, at Software Freedom Conservancy, he was doing an enforcement matter, uh, and that usually involves uh, checking source code releases. Right, so you have a violator, and they violate the GPL in some way, and we ask them to give us copies of the source code that's supposed to be able to build and install onto the device that was violating. And we confirm that. We check. We do details, detailed checks to make sure that it builds. And he had done one, and he said, well, I figured out, I was like, well, did it install? Because that's often the thing that they screw up. They they ignore the part of GPLv2 that says you have to include the scripts used to install the executable. And Often we find that they didn't. Well, Denver said, actually, I got it to install, but I had to put a, I had to mess with the firmware a little bit. I had to put the string that was the name of the company that was violating as a password in the firmware to get it to install the modified version. But it worked once I did that. And I realized when he started saying I had to mess with the firmware to put a password, I said, that's a technological protection measure. Even though the that password was guessable. That could be. Could be. Okay. Yes. Uh, Karen, uh, Karen being, uh, speaking like a lawyer is saying could be, but, but we had to be concerned that it might be because specifically passwords, even trivial ones. And this, a lot of this has been t- talked about in DMCA circles that even if the password's guessable, it's still a technological protection measure. So the fact that it was password protected was an issue. And I was like, well, wait a second. If they don't give us permission to do that, like basically they're using the DMCA and then it's a GPL violation just by that, by the fact that they didn't give us that password because they're now using a technological protection measure to stop people from doing what is compliant with the GPL anyway. It's one of the most absurd uh, situations that I've we've come across on, uh, on, on these, these areas where the DMCA has provided this just, it's just absurd. Yeah, and I've been doing things like this in GPL enforcement for 20 years, probably, and had never considered the fact, of course, and the DMCA has existed that whole time. It was made law in 98. I think it went into effect in 2000, uh, which is why it was called the you know, Millennium Copyright Act. Um, yes, I know the Stephen Jay Gould essay on whether the millennium was 2000, 2001. Please don't write in about that. Thanks. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, but the, you know, the, the, I never considered that, wait, the DMCA might affect this. And the reason I never considered it is because the other party that had made the technological protection measure, the lockdown measure, the DRM, was infringing copyright anyway. So I didn't really think through that, oh, but they're, they have multiple copyrighted works. They have the copyrighted works that are GPL, but then they have these non-GPL legitimately proprietary works that they're also locking down with the same mechanism. And I, it wasn't until Denver in, encountered this scenario where he had literally entered this password that I realized this is this we've got to file for an exemption on this. Yeah, it's just one of it's a it's like I think one of the best examples of where the the laws really are created in a copyright maximalist world, and they break down and are completely confusing as to how they apply in a world where people choose to share. And it's deeply unfortunate. It's one of these like. You know, it's, it, it's fantastic that we use the hack on copyright law for copyleft. And it's fantastic that we find ways 
to to share and to build legal structures around sharing. But at the end of the day, because most of these laws are codified with other interests in mind, that means that there's a real disconnect. And it means we're often in this like really weird gray area where we don't even know how 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 the laws will realistically apply to us. But luckily, you know, while the law is deeply problematic and all the things we've said before, while we're in that situation, there is this triennial review process and we pay attention to it because we were involved with the smart TV exemption and we know we have to pay attention to it in order to make sure that we can fight for software freedom where we need to do so. So we were poised to be able to submit and, you know, to submit this exemption request. But Karen, I'm worried about something. You're worried about a lot of things. What are you worried about right now? Uh, well, I mean, my, my professional job. Like, like so I have this new title, by the way. Since, since we last recorded a uh, cast, I, I my title is now policy fellow and hacker in residence. But I sort of see the job of policy fellow as just like worrying all the time about bad policy because pretty much all the policy around free software is bad, except for the you know the you know policies generated by free software communities. But the policies that are coming at us from the tech industry, from the legal system, they're all generally pretty bad. And so I'm just a professional worrier. But the thing that I worry about is the thing we were saying in the last segment, which is the exemption. The Copyright Office is really clear that they will only grant an exemption for use, not for so-called trafficking, which I, I call dissemination because I, I don't want to use their propaganda Yeah, trafficking word. is terrible. Yeah. But dissemination, right? So I call it dissemination because that's not a, that's not a, you know, loaded propaganda style word. Um, but. The, they're not going to give us – they're highly unlikely. I mean, they would change their entire tradition of this whole process if they grant us an exemption to disseminate information about how to break these copy protection measures in the case of somebody violating. So while if we get the exemption, which I think we will, um, we'll be allowed to do it ourselves and each independent entity, including individuals out there, will be allowed on their own. But I can't, for example, as I understand it, teach a tutorial – where I teach people how to circumvent these measures for the purposes of investigating GPL violations. Or I can teach it, but I'll be in violation of the law and possibly maybe, subject maybe. to criminal penalties. Depends what you're teaching. It depends what you're, whether the measure is actually a technological protection measure or something else. Whether or not you're actually circumventing, you might not be circumventing. That's true. But I mean, the thing is that this is where this phrase and this phrase was real. I wish this phrase were around more. It was very popular early in the days of opposition to DMCA uh, was called chilling effects, which is this idea that because of the uncertainty, because you don't know whether or not a particular action or technological method is considered under the law a TPM, therefore, you're afraid to publish anything because you don't know if you're going to get arrested. And, it, and and I'm not exaggerating when I say arrested. People who are new to free software or, or just younger may not know that someone was actually put in jail for giving a talk at DEF CON on how to circumvent a technological measure created by Adobe. Adobe just called the FBI in 2002 or 2003 era and got a guy arrested. Now, eventually he got out. They just basically deported him. He was a, he was a Russian national who had come into Las Vegas for DEF CON, got arrested, spent some time in jail, and then they just deported him. But it's not unrealistic to say people can get arrested just for giving talks. Yeah. About I don't know. Measures. I don't think that, that people outside of the, like, 
people who aren't like really into technology like we are and all of our listeners are, I don't I don't think they fully appreciate how far reaching that is. Like, I don't think they realize that there are quite a lot of developers and very talented people over overall who will not come to the United States solely because of that and have not changed their stance ever since then and, and will never change it unless the law changes. And so, you know, this is a real detriment to the United States being a place where we can have critical conversation about the future of technology, which yeah. I don't think is, I don't think anyone has like, I don't think any of the lawmakers really fully understand that that's the case. I think that's right. And, and one of those people, uh, because he's talked about it in public talks, I'll say is Howard Velte of, um, of who spent many years doing uh, GPL enforcement. He works on other projects now, but he ran GPLviolations.org for many years um, he's one of those people who who just won't enter the United States because he's uh, published stuff about how to how to do that, which is completely legal in his country, uh, but it, it it's not it may not be legal in the United States. Yeah, it's really terrible. I don't really know what else to say about it except that it's outrageous and it's terrible, and uh, and the work that we do on our exemptions is critical and the best we can right now. But it is insufficient in the sense that this, you know, this is just such a deep problem. Yeah. And so I, I would really like to do uh, uh, a podcast eventually. I'll do more research. Uh, I'm still going to be an amateur, but I'm going to do more research. I'm going to learn more about the history of how we got this and really, really talk through how we got this law. Because I think, uh, you know, all the stuff that led up to it, because I think we do have to look, uh, obviously, Software Freedom Conservancy is a 501c3 charity. We are very limited in the amount of lobbying we can do. But uh, I, one of the reasons why I'm not running out to like form a separate organization to lobby on this issue is, is I think it's really hard. Uh, and I think the, the, the deck is really stacked against us. And so, and I think a lot of it has to do with the history of how we got this law and so forth. So I, so I would like to do a podcast where we just talk about like, could we repeal the DMCA? Um, so at some future show, I won't commit to a specific show or date, but I, I really would like to go through the history and then the, ask the question, could we get this repealed? Yeah. And we are, to be clear, while we have to really limit our lobbying, we don't have to limit the amount of talking about a topic that we do in general public education. Yeah, correct. Well, I mean, lobbying is a very specific activity that's like going in and talking to senators about specific legislation that you want them to write or change. Uh, just yeah, talking or, about a law or, is not lobbying. Right. But uh, but engaging with agencies is. So um, it's it's broader than you might think, but uh, but yeah, but we we don't do a substantial amount of it. Yeah, yeah, and we record our time very uh, that we do very well, and 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 you're actually a lot of people don't realize this. Sorry to turn this into like more like we're we're famous for our IRS five hundred one uh, subsection talk, but uh, but mm -hmm. uh, there is actually a certain amount the C threes are allowed to do every year, uh, which mm -hmm. we never even reach uh, the 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 kind of minimal amount you're allowed to do just because three Cs are allowed to do a little bit of it. Um, That's right. So, well, it has to be insubstantial, or otherwise you have yeah. to file an election. But yeah, yep. <laughs> sorry. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we're going to talk about 501c uh, subsection well, stuff, no matter what we do. So uh, so I, I think I think we're 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 running kind of long on the DMCA stuff this episode. I think our plan, Karen, uh, right, is to uh, we'll talk about the next two exemptions, the other two exemptions uh, that uh, that we filed in this process in our next episode. Uh, and so that'll be the next episode that folks hear. And we want to wrap up this episode after the break to tell people about an exciting new 
supporter benefit for supporters of Software Freedom Conservancy that relates specifically to this podcast. Sounds good. We'll be back after this short break. So thanks, everybody, for sticking with us and uh, do our long hiatus, our, our, our additional hiatus and... Uh, and our additional, uh, and additional for- hiatus. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this podcast what do we what do we call it now podcast, so, so podcast, my view podcast? is so so that we've had much debate uh, in back in our back catalog people we debated like i didn't want to call it a podcast because of uh, apple and so forth but given that apple no longer makes the ipod i actually think it's kind of just this loan word i mean i, I mean th- at this point the ipod's been out of production for how long like 10 years now um i mean at least five and so I don't know. I think you can buy the iPod Classic for people who are like diehards, but I think it's it's gone. So I mean, at this point, I kind of view like the word pod. Like they never had trademark on pod; they had it on iPod. Um, and frankly, podcast is is so well so so alone word. I'm happy to just like take it away from Apple from my point of view now. All right. So my position's kind of so, changed on it. So this podcast, all right then. I did like Oddcast, and of course I liked using Og. But okay, so the this podcast is um is possible is made possible by the fact that Bradley and I both work at the Software Freedom Conservancy, and I we we've done it as individuals on our own behalf, uh, but we also are able to do it because we work at Conservancy. Now uh, is the end of the year uh, our, for our annual fundraiser. And I'm so bad at this that I'm stumbling over what I'm saying because I hate asking people to give. Yeah, I, I think for many years, Karen and I worked hard to try to make this just sort of an independent thing that she and I did. We've been working so closely together at Conservancy for so long. Um, I think it's it's unrealistic for us to pretend this is not really a kind of a conservancy activity, a conservancy podcast. And as Karen says, the at this point we're doing it on our work time instead of we, we used to always try to do it on the weekends as like a volunteer thing um, but it's not realistic because we both work so many hours for conservancy and it is a great promotion for conservancy to do this and conservancy from our point of view obviously is doing great work and what we need to ask folks to do is to support conservancy uh, lots of podcasts do these pitches. I listen to a lot of podcasts that are on both nonprofit and for-profit networks, and they they pitch to you that you should just fund them to do the podcast. Uh, but if you fund this podcast, you're you're not only funding us to do the podcast. That's only a tiny bit of what your dollars do. It's funding us to do all this work that we've been talking about this episode. Uh, it's, it helps fund all of the activities you see doing at Conservancy, support for our member projects. GPL enforcement, advocacy about copyleft, education about free software licenses and ideas. So I hope that you'll become a supporter of Conservancy. And now we've uh, we've we're doing something a little bit differently now. Where if you are a supporter and you have an interest in hearing us record these episodes live, so as uh, Bradley may have mentioned earlier, um, you know we've we've been on a hiatus. We've recorded episodes that we haven't always published. Um, so if you are interested in hearing uh, this material live, so you don't have to wait, if you're a supporter, you can, um, get access to a big blue button link where you can, uh, watch and listen to us recording these episodes and you'll, you'll hear it all. You'll hear the unedited 
version right when it happens. Right. And this is a thing a lot of podcasts do. They, they let their, their best uh, donors become uh, listeners of the live recording. Uh, it, it, you see how I, I don't like this phrase because I'm, I'm a vegetarian, but you see how the sausage is made. You see what happens, uh, you know, in, in, in the room in between, not in the room because we're not physically in the same space, but you see the conversation between me and Karen in between. Uh, you, you, uh, I guess I'm not selling this very well because I'm like, you sit through us setting up equipment and all this sort of stuff, <laughs> but, but you can really see the podcast being made. If you're a fan of that, if you're interested in how we do it, uh, and you just want to hear the stuff that get, ends up on the editing room floor, and a lot does every time. Uh, you can you can join us uh, on the big blue button, and and that's another thing to add is that we finally got this going. We we basically made a minor equipment change, and we were using this complicated setup of using the public switch telephone network, the regular phones as our back channel. Uh, we now have uh, thanks to conservancy uh, a volunteer at Cons- uh, for conservancy uh set up a big blue button server for us so we can now use that as the back channel but the side effect of that is is that other people can join and watch the uh, big blue button recording so what what will happen is if you become a supporter for at least $120 a year or $10 a month, uh, you'll get access to a special mailing list, which hasn't been created yet, but will be soon. Uh, in fact, by the time you hear this, it will be created. See, I did the time travel podcast wrong thing wrong there. Uh, there'll be a mailing list that you can subscribe to and we'll send an email out. Uh, hopefully, you know, usually 24 hours in advance, maybe more, maybe less, depending on what's going on of when we're recording. And then you can join the big blue button link and listen to us record and be yep. involved and in even- the chat and everything else. Yeah, I was going to say, and even type questions or other thoughts as we go. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate everybody and uh, supporting Conservancy. Right now is the time to do it. Our match, our donation match is running. So if you donate now, the donation will be matched uh, for dollar for dollar for everything you give uh, between now and January 15th, 2021. So we hope you can find a way to give. And if you become a full-fledged supporter, you're going to be able to see us or see and hear us uh, live. Uh, when we record this show. Yeah, and I would note that our matchers are not like corporations. They're just individuals who are digging a little bit deeper into their pockets to uh, one time to make sure that we are able to keep going. So they're really people who are like you. So if you are able to, we know that during the pandemic, everything's difficult. And so if you aren't able to afford to donate, you know, please don't worry about it. But if you are able, we really appreciate it. And we just appreciate you listening. So thanks for tuning in to us. And we'll talk to you in the next episode of Free As In Freedom. Free As In Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H dot O-R-G. The Free As In Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website sfconservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot U-S. All episodes of Freeism Freedom are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. So we're breaking for a new section. <laughs> That's exactly what we're going to do, Karen. Okay, and then it's going to go near, 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 near.
Wait, do we already break, or is this like now we? Am I gonna have to tell Dan? So, so, so now what? What you just caused me to have to do is I'm gonna have to listen to this segment and tell Dan where it actually ended because it didn't actually end. So, so you can stop recording now. Okay, so now I stop recording.